To the Needle Mythology podcast with myself, Pete Perfides, brought to you in proud association with Flare Audio. This is the second part of our interview with Ian Brodie, best known, of course, for the succession of magnificent hits he created with the Lightning Seeds. In part one, we talked about his coming of age as a producer, his time with Liverpool Supergroup Big in Japan. We didn't yet know they were a supergroup at the time. They went on to do all these amazing things. And um, his uh, production work with people like Echo and the Bunnymen and... Um, also the fall and in this part we're going to kind of focus on his work with the lightning seeds and also talk about his beautiful 2004 album tales told an unassuming masterpiece created in the throes of adversity If you had your way, no one would have ever heard Pure because I'm trying to remember what you said to me about this before, but you bottled it or you sort of... (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, obviously I hadn't had a record out being the singer and stuff, you know, and and I had Pure and I recorded it and then I felt like there was far too many words. I thought, I've done this wrong, because I'd I'd be producing people and I'd get a lyric sheet and it would have, you know, this chorus, which would be four lines repeated and four lines in the verse, and then Pure was like... And it was actually... There were a lot more words in it than it ended up, to be fair, as well. Uh, And it it was like a page full of of This This is like an epistle from a man in love. Yeah, well, it was just... That's that's the brilliant thing about it. That's how we all feel when we're in love. Yeah. You, you know, it's quite gushing. Yeah. Just lying, smiling in the dark, shooting stars around your heart, dreams come bouncing in your head, pure and simple every time. Now you're crying in your sleep, I wish you'd never learn to weep. Don't sell the dreams you should be keeping, pure and simple every time. And then I felt like, God, this is a bit embarrassing. It's like, because uh, there's a lot of me in that song. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, I'm not sure I want. And, you know, it just felt like, I don't know. Just I felt too much embarrassed about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would, you would until the first person sort of comes back to you and says, "No, that's really good." Yeah, you would. What happened? So I took it off the album. Really, it wasn't even on the album. Really. So Um, you were working with an engineer, weren't you? I was working with Chenzo Townsend, and we got you know towards the end of the mix, and I said, "Yeah, this is embarrassing and rubbish. Just forget it. I'm not going to." Finish it, you know. And he said, "Well, I'll just, I'll just put it down as it is." And I was like, "Don't, don't do that," you know. And I think I just left the room, you know. It was like quite disappointed. Yeah. But he did put it down, and it ended up on the tape that was given to. Um, well, it wasn't really a record company. Then. It was just like a guy called Dick Lee. Uh, and then he kind of phoned me up and said, "I love that song," and I was like, "Why is that on there? You know, it shouldn't be on there." 
take it off, you know. Did, did, did Chenzo sort of defy your instructions then, or was it just more of a sort of passive thing of like? Yeah, no, it was. I just we never. I just was like, oh, I wouldn't bother putting it down. It's rubbish, and I, I'm going to go and make a cup of tea, <laughs> sort of thing, you know. It's one of my kind of favourite singles of all time, but at the same time, I can see why you would have thought that because you did lay it all on the line, and it's one of those things where if you misjudge it even a bit, it could be a bit. Mm. You know, sort of much. So I guess that's what you were thinking. Yeah, I suppose my my thoughts at that time were, you know, I was kind of trying to do something a bit like Flaming Sword and Jeans Not and Flaming's that kind of area, really. And it and then it ends. It ended up not like that. Well, it's a bit like the Back of Love in the sense that it has got a lot of words in that kind of, you know, it's like a declaration, yeah, of something, you know. Well, I think also it was quite funny because I remember thinking, you know, it's a bit drab you know i'm saying all these words i i think it could i wonder if an arpeggio would kind of work and i just bought this first ever s900 sampler and I was, you know and i ended up flicking through sounds and stopped and then it was this trumpety one oh, right. so that was really an aside really but then it became such a feature because i never really finished balancing it and it was a real fortunate accident, really. So that be- that's a real headline in that song. Mm, it but is. it was a real afterthought, you know. It was kind of weird because I saw a clip of you on Top of the Pops. kind of didn't know anything about you. I mean, even though I did, but I didn't know it was you. It was very mysterious because this, what, you know, it's kind of a bit like indie pop, but I don't... I know everything about indie pop, which I sort of did at the time because I was young oh. and had loads of time on my hands. And, so, and um, why don't I know this guy? So it did sort of came out of nowhere. Well, it was a very strange situation. So this guy who had been a 60s publisher and I'd sort of recorded it mainly, you know, in the house and a bit in the studio in Kirby in Liverpool that I used to work in. They'd give me free time in the night or whatever. And then he'd give me a little bit of budget to do it, but not much. And then it was done, and it was like, well, what, you know, he said, I love this song, Pure, and I the album sounds really good. Uh, I said, well, you know, I haven't got a record contract or anything like that. And at the time, all these bands from Liverpool were signing massive record contracts, really, you know, so the Lars had signed a big deal with Go Discs, and it was all like, you know, and Rain and the real people, they'd all signed these big records. Everyone was signing yeah. to major labels, you know. And I'd assume that, you know, that's, I'd probably have to do some gigs and do that. And then he said, uh, he said, well, you know, I'll just put it out. And I was like, well, you haven't got a record label? He said, it, you know, it's fine, I'll start one. So really there wasn't really a label. So I think he got on the phone to Rough Trade and I think they pressed up, you know, 800,000 copies. And there was a fellow called Scott Peering, actually. 800,000? No, 800 or 1,000. I was going to say. <laughs> no, not like, 800,000. Big like, hopes for yeah, this. <laughs> no, like 800, maybe 1,000 copies. I just don't think it was 1,000. I've just got in my head that it was yeah. 800. I yeah, don't know yeah, why. Okay, yeah. Very few, really. And, you know, obviously I hadn't got a group and I hadn't, you know, and, and, and they put it out, which was great, you know. And it was out for ages. And it was getting, you know... John Peel played it a few times and then he was remarking on it, saying it was pretty good. And then it was like these odd little things happening, like it'd go to 132 in the charts and then it'd slip down to 182 and then the next week it might be 121. And it was kind of just floating about there, but but no one 
you know, no, I, I don't know. It was just there. Was there like was there like a daytime DJ that picked it up or something? Well, what it it was weird. I started getting these things where, and they said, "Oh, there's a guy in Stoke, and you know, he's decided he's going to play it three times a night. He thinks it's the best record he's ever heard, and he's on his show five nights a week, and all this." And then it eventually culminated in, of all people, Steve Wright, who was on in the afternoon on Radio One, and it was a big deal. And I remember them saying. You're gonna get played on the radio. You know, tune in and all that. And I was like, okay, so I tuned in, and he played it, and he got halfway through and he took it off. And I remember thinking, oh my god. And he said, hang on, I'm just gonna stop this record. And I thought, oh, it's not up to muster, you know. And so when he took it off, my heart sank, you know. And then he he sort of said, I'm gonna stop this record. I've never heard anything like this. This is so good. I'm gonna start it again. Oh, my God. So he sort of started it again, and then he said, I'm going to play it again. And he played it, like, a lot of times, you know. <laughs> it was really weird. It's a bit like, you know, do you know who the first person to play Radiohead on daytime television was? No. Gary Davis. Okay. So, you know. Yeah. It's fair play. You know, I mean, I probably owe him quite a lot. So then the panic was, but we've only got 800 copies, you know. <laughs> so it never really went up the charts because so yeah, they kept yeah. running out, yeah. you know. So it's sort of, it was this mad thing. And then I remember being in Liverpool, and it was it was a bit like a fairy story for me because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't really want to be doing producing anymore. Didn't have a band, you know. Everyone was signing these big deals, and then so I remember getting this call, and I was sort of just in the house in, uh, you know, it was like an afternoon or five in the evening, and my phone went, and they said, "Is this Ian Brody from the Lightning Seeds?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he said, this is Rodney on the Rock in K-Rock, L.A. You're the most requested song in California this week. And I went, I haven't even got a deal. It's not out in America. That can't be true. You know, who is this? And he was like, no, I promise you. So I phoned up my mate who was in Los Angeles at that time. who was a drummer from a band called The Three O'Clock. I said to him, who's Rodney? And he was like, oh, no, he's the guy who, you know... Played Mark Bolan and did all this. Like Murray the K or something. Yeah, he was like a legendary kind of uh, guy. And then it turned out it was. And I did this little interview, you know. And then it was like number one in the airplay charts, but it it wasn't released. No, because K-Rock is where it all starts, I think. You know, it goes from like west to east. You know, it's like hugely influential. It kicked everything off, really. Right, yeah. And I wasn't ready at all, you know. Now you're crying in your sleep. I wish you'd never learn to weep. Don't sell the dreams you should be keeping pure and simple every time. Look at me with starry eyes, push me up the starry skies. The stardust in my head, pure and simple every time. I had to come out of the studio. <laughs> it took me three years before I did a gig. Yeah, because you didn't do Top of the Pops or anything, did you? For, like, no, well, I, I was very um, shy about yeah. all that, you know. You eventually did, of course. Before we just go on to Tales Told, which is the solo album that, that's coming out again, I just want to set the scene slightly because in some ways it's sort of similar to what happened with Pure. It seemed to have been recorded piecemeal while other things were going on. And yet at the same time, what happened before Tales Told couldn't have been more different because you'd had this, this thing that started out almost accidentally in a very mod- modest, anonymous kind of way eventually took you to number one in the charts but not just once but 
so far four times. With Three Lions and all that, did it feel like you were doing the same thing, essentially, at its heart, that you were doing way back with Cloud Cuckoo Land, with the first album? I think the thing that changed things an awful lot was I heard De La Soul's album. That came out, I think, just after Cloud Cuckoo Land. Right. And I'd never really heard music played like that, because it was kind of hip-hop, but it was bits of records and bits of beats. And I was like, well, I haven't got a group, and they haven't got a group. Mirror, mirror on the wall Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? And they're making things that they're not just programmed. You know, it's like they're using these... How do you do that? You know, no one had really made records outside that genre using that technique, I don't think. Because I was a record producer, I, you know, I was straight away, mm. that's a way of making records that I don't know about. I've always gone in recorded bands. Yeah, yeah, I haven't yeah, got yeah. a band. Yeah. I don't really want to sound like Depeche Mode or something. It, this might be a way of doing that. So I just made it my... And Simon, who I'd met during the fall stuff, he was really good with all that stuff. And he was like a real number one co-conspirator, really. And mm. we just tried to figure out ways of using... We had loads of records and we sampled things and sampled beats and got the, tried to fit my songs over those sample beats. First one that I did like that was Sense, and then Life O'Reilly, and that sort of set the way of doing something, I think. And then in Jollification, it's all it's the like apex that. of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was lucky in a way because I think it was the way that everyone made records for ten years after that. Yeah, but I just, by some flu, no one had done it. I'm flying high on something beautiful and aimless. It's got a name that I prefer to call it. It comes and goes and leaves me on a bed of splinters Feel like I'm living in a town closed down for winter getting on those shows and like you know Chris Evans got behind you and all those people so you know I, the songs are doing the heavy lifting for you in a way well, it was a funny I remember when I, I signed to the major label which was Sony and I did Jollification actually I'd recorded it before I signed it I'd just done it under my own steam and I remember having a meeting and, and it was weird I had to meet all these people and I remember meeting the, the lady who was going to try and get your TV shows you know who was lovely, and her saying to me, well, you know, you know, and she'd obviously worked with indie bands and that, and, and, and she was like, you know, obviously, you know, we'll try and get this and that, the other, we'll steer clear of... And I was like, no, hang on, all those kids' TV shows, I, w- I would like to do them, even though people don't. And she was like, are you sure? Because, you know, most, you know... And I was like, when I was a kid, there used to be a show called Lift Off with Aisha, and right. another show, there was a few kids' TV shows... Where I first saw Jimi Hendrix, you know, the Lulu show mm. with Jimi Hendrix on it, or Mark Bolan, 
all the things that I loved were always on kids' TV. And I didn't really like the old grey whistle test. Yeah, that yeah. seemed a bit musoey and boring, you know what I mean? But the kids' TV ones... Well, you're right, that's how I, you know, that's kind of, you know, I'm, I probably saw care on the TV. Yeah, and, and I was like, I want to do those shows, you know, that I'm more up for that than later, really, to be fair, you know. So that's kind of what we did. And I think, I didn't really think much about it at the time, but I actually think... You know, I, lo- I like doing zig and zag and all that it's nonsense. It was really good fun. Did zig and zag interview you? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you remember what they asked you? Well, it was funny, actually, because Riley was little, and I'd taken him along because I thought, you know, he'd like zig and zag. So they ended up dragging him on. And there's a clip of it on YouTube, actually. And they just interviewed him about me, trying to get him to say embarrassing <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know. And I think he says he prefers the manic street preachers to me and all this, you know, and, and uh, you know, it was fun. forward to the sort of beginning of the 2000s and sort of the lightning seeds had slightly sort of gone to ground I remember you telling me um, about the strange situations that Three Lions put you in which were not always great and there was a sort of this NME interview you told me about that you know kind of alarmed me in a way yeah there were some horrible situations that I found myself in very uncomfortable situations with Three Lions and it just took me from somewhere I was quite comfortable into somewhere that... Yeah, I mean, that enemy thing was, was really weird. I've, I've never understood that. You know what? I've blocked half of it out of my memory. All I can remember is a journalist being really rude to you. But um... No, terribly uh, rude. And, and Anyway. anyway uh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, um, but I think in some ways, yeah, I mean, I, I'd felt like The Lightning Seeds was finished and a chapter of my life was finished. And then I'd hit, you know, very emotional, turbulent times, you know. I'd been divorced, lost my mum, my dad, my sister, my brother very quickly. And I was a bit shell-shocked. I think, actually, maybe this was before my brother died, actually. So I, I don't it know. It was, before, it was in the midst of it. was in the middle of it, yeah. I yeah. can't remember the exact... But I know I was pretty... Uh, Punch drunk, is that Yeah, fair? just not sure what to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're sort of dealing with this thing where you've been in a kind of probably in a bubble since I was in big in Japan, right up to that moment, mm. in a way. And then all of a sudden, right, you've done that now and you're not doing it anymore. Who are you? What are you doing? What's happening? You know. Maybe two of the big things you define yourself by are your work <clears throat> and, um, and, and, your, and your family. And so when both of those are either taken away from you or they change, then, as you say, it's a case of, Hang on, without all of these things, who the hell am I? Yeah, and I think coupled with that, it was just post being successful. Hmm. And that's a funny thing to deal with as well, you know, because you go from being incredibly busy to not that busy. I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's quite a funny th- moment to deal with from feeling like, to some degree, you've got a magic touch. Yeah. But that magic touch isn't there anymore. And who are you? Where were you? You know, because that. It was only there briefly. Yeah, and also I would think, you know, in in the wake of a divorce, suddenly 
the kind of hands-on business of being a dad and so you know so the, the, some of that has gone as well so there's this, this time has opened up and of course the worst thing in a way if you're kind of asking yourself these big questions is time it's the time in which to kind of ponder them yeah no and i was you know floating about and i, I now that i think about it i suppose i really reverted to type i went back to just before all that which is when i was producing a young emerging band from Liverpool, and I just went back to doing that. You know, Which, it, yeah, because you got the call to produce the Coral and the Zootons uh, in the, in their infancy, really. Yeah, I don't think there's. Yeah, the Zootons kind of half existed at that point, and yeah, you know, none of them had record contracts or anything, and I, you know, I felt very comfortable with that. It felt like it was something I could be involved with, and also it wouldn't involve you know, a, a situation with a, a record company. Like, mm. I, I do have a bit of a problem with authority, I think, and I don't like... And I much prefer, if I'm working on songs, I would like to collaborate. I don't like being hired and, and, and told what to do, in a way. So this I think it ties one hand behind your back straight away. You know? It's up on my heart when it skips a beat. Can't feel no pavement right under my feet. Your comfort zone found you, really, in the form of Delta Sonic. Is it Alan from Delta Sonic who kind of invited you up to um, work yeah. with these young musicians? Yeah. You know, there was this band, The Coral, who were very obviously very special, but also very fragile at that time. And in what could, way fragile? Like, they could play with each other in a certain environment, but as soon as one part of that environment was slightly altered, the whole thing fell apart. Wow. And it made it extremely unique was like an egg you needed to to just boil the egg within the shell not break the shell do you know what i mean it, yes. it, you know so i remember james saying to me I don't know if he'd remember this, but I remember him saying to me quite early on, uh, you know, we did a few gigs and we were rubbish, so we decided to just rehearse for two years. So they rehearsed for like two, you know, in this room, in a certain environment where they could all hear, and, you know, but they had no experience. It felt like to me like a band, a great band from the 60s might have felt and all that. So I just felt it was quite important to just go to a place where we could record everything in its entirety, and pretty lo, much live. You know? And lo and behold, when those records came out, that's what people loved about them, the fact that it was... I didn't iron it out. You know, yeah. I, I just thought, if I iron this stuff out, which is what a producer will do, you'll lose 50% of what's good, you know. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb Jet earphones. And so you had these songs that um, you were see, you must have been you were still writing them, is that right? As as a lot, in parallel with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I would say that I often have songs and I can play them on the acoustic, but I want to make a great record that can take its place in the world. And putting those two things together is really difficult, and sometimes it's it's two things that shouldn't fit together, but I want them to fit together. And it makes it difficult for me. And I think in jollification, I managed to do that. 
And the two things that slip the net are pure and tales told. Which is kind of interesting because tales told in many ways, I feel like, is an inversion of pure. I just think they, you know, uh, escaped my OCD (laughs) musical uh, obsession to a degree and came out, you know, I didn't do that with those. And yet pure is about sort of the dream, the ideal of this, like, ideal of perfect love. And then, you know, a lot a lot of what happens on Tales Told is what happens when it kind of, the, that bubble kind of bursts in a way, it seems to me anyway. I guess, you know, Song for No One, which is the opening song on the album. From night, skies dressed in cloud Morning came, you taste in my mouth I remember clearly the first time I heard it because I was slightly shocked by it. The guitar playing, it's like you and an acoustic guitar. It's like, why hadn't you recorded yourself playing so beautifully in, in, that, in that kind of unadorned acoustic picking way? Yeah, and I suppose that's confidence, you know, lack of confidence, really. When I think about a lot of the Lightning Seed stuff, which I think worked out, it's worked out well. It sounds like, I mean, you know, it worked out really yeah, well for yeah, yeah. But it is all about me putting everything there in between me and the, you know, I'm, I'm very yeah. much just a part of a big sound. Yeah, almost feeling like just you and the songs isn't enough. Yeah. Kiss the world with fingers crossed. I'll kiss the world with fingers crossed. I've been praised, I've been cursed, I've been blamed, and I've won and I've lost. Just when I was doing Tales Told, as you said, I... I think I was just, it was just an outlet for my feelings, really. It's like you didn't know that people were necessarily even going to hear them, right? I didn't feel like I was making a record particularly. I don't know what I felt like I was doing. I think I was just writing songs and I wanted to get them down. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it didn't feel like the pressure of making a Lightning Seeds record. It sort of slipped the net of all my uh, worries, really, and it just was... I didn't cover it up. Really. And Song for No One, is that, was I right in thinking that Song for No One is, you called it that because there was no one immediately to hand that you would occur to you that was there to play it to? I think when I write songs, I, it kinda, I do think I am sort of writing them almost for someone who I know will like them. Yeah. And, you know, that, there'd be someone who would be a focus for that. Yeah. And I think at that point I just... I wasn't writing it for anyone, just writing it for me, really, you know. And um, you were saying earlier on about, you know, the way you produce a band, uh, sometimes is you almost imagine that you're in them. And, of course, the great thing that you're able to do by harnessing, like, people in the choral and so forth, so, like, on a, on a song like, uh, I think, Smoke Rings, is that you could briefly be in that band. Yeah. To be honest, you know, I think in my career and, in, in, you know, the Bunnymen and the Coral are two, I'd say, special bonds, special moments, you know. I mean, the Coral have always been so... And, and actually, you know, we had lots of heated moments. It's not like it was all lovely and they frustrated me massively and I never wanted to see them again after Magic and Medicine, you know, and all that. But we, somehow it's a bit like family, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and we've just... Always stay close and, you know, I think we've always supported each other wherever we can, really, you know. Mm. Life, looking through smoke rings 
I always feel with the bunny men, it's just there is, you know, I feel a part of it, even though I might not see them for ten years or something. Yeah. You know, it, it, there is a, a sort of bond. You know, there's a lot of guitar by Bill Ryder Jones on the album that mm. was it was great because I could, you know, between Bill and Jen and everyone really, they just always and that's never stopped really. That's never really stopped even right now. It's always like, do you need anything on your record? You know, and I love that. I, I think that's a really precious thing to me. You know, it's amazing, and you know that trust that exists between you and that kind of understanding is there on the song like "He Sails Tonight," which I think is co-written by James. Is that right? Yeah, I think James coaxed it out of me a bit, really. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? I remember Brian Wilson saying about Park, uh, Van Dyke Parks, you know, something about he wrote the lyrics I wrote, or some, some sentence that oh, right, didn't okay, make yeah, sense, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, he, yeah, he verbalised maybe what... He, yeah, yeah. And, and he seemed to, to... It felt a bit like that in that song, you know, because it's, it's a very sort of personal song. But, I, you know, I couldn't have written it without James doing that, really, you know. In between awake and sleep He closed his eyes and took the leap Afternoons where mothers weep for frozen lakes and fallen leaves. But Barry, some of your most uh, extraordinary words, really, and you know, I'm sort of thinking about um, when northern lights parade the air like carousels at summer fairs, beware the stare of ghost house eyes, of wicked whispers in the night. Like, that's kind of uncharacteristically dark imagery there. Well, maybe not too uncharacteristic, I don't know. I've always, you know, been dealing with depression up and down all the way through and, and it's in a lot of songs. You know, I had the experience of, which I'm sure a lot of people have gone through and it, and you can't verbalise it and that doesn't verbalise that well but that isn't about that. I think a lot of that is sitting in Marie Curie while someone is just in between life and death and that's a horrible thing to be talking about actually but that, you know, yeah. I think a lot of that is in that song being with my father in there for for days and that's what it's about and all the lights parade the air like carousels at summer fairs you wear the stare of ghost house eyes and wicked whispers in the night still it's ringing in his mind so hard to touch so hard to find in treehouse dreams he still awaits the seven seas to seal his fate time is passing by the ship comes in the sail tonight also on that record is um there's a kind of happy ending in terms of the fact that, you know, Riley is in your band. You know, I hear you talking about him. He's more than your son. He's clearly like your best friend, it would seem. Um, but at the time, obviously, on, on the uh, on the title track, you know, you get this moment, and you know, we all have that. I think, irrespective of whether or not you know we we separate, we all have that moment of sort of thinking, you know, how, how big a part of your life am I going to be? So
reminds me of something Paul Heaton said actually about middle-aged angst and he said why is middle-aged angst somehow perceived as being less cool or more trivial than like teenage angst because actually let's count all the things you have to worry about at middle age you know like you've got to keep a relationship you've got to stay alive for your kids you know you've got to stay solvent you're closer to death <laughs> <You know? laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, not for the faint-hearted, yeah. <laughs> but like I say, he's in your band now, isn't he? Yeah, I think, you know, for someone who, you know, writes a lot about being scared of losing things, that probably was the moment when I was losing things a lot. But the song is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it is about all the things that are going on at that moment that, you, you know, you're not sure. I suppose what we just said, you're not sure, you know, who you are anymore or, no. what, or the things that define you. You know, like you just said, you know, being a father yeah. defines you. Yeah. You know, you're not quite sure, are you still one or are you not one or, or, you know. And I think that later that settles down and you go, of course I am. Here I am Receiving gifts that autumn brings Time's a thief, I gasp comes on frozen wings Now I know The time for telling tales has gone You know, your story is being written every day that you're alive and, you know, you take ownership of your story over time. And, you know, we're near kind of a weird kind of way you take pride in your story because those experiences are sort of unique to you. And I think one of the great things about being an artist is not only can you take pride in your stories, but you can take pride in the records that act as staging posts sort of in that story and become part of other people's stories as well. So that's a sort of a, a kind of a blessed sort of position to um, to be in. Obviously, it's been a, a while since the last Lightning Seeds record. Are you just writing all the time? Yeah, I kind of am. I find it difficult to record. I, f- I find write, I write a lot, uh, and I've got a lot of songs. I'm just not quite certain of of quite how I should sound really. And so I suppose it's back to what my cake and eat it really. I want it to sound. You know, I, I often think of like. John Lennon, say, not just John Lennon, but, you know Bob Dylan, John, Lennon, but, and you sort of think, you know, John, the words fly out like endless rain into a paper cup, and they slither blindly as the universe, you know, and you're like, wow, but then you kind of go, for all that, when you just go, when you take all the music away, and he just says, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, that's actually more affecting, you know, and I think. I love Bob Dylan. I've always loved Bob Dylan since I was a little kid. But I'd have to say, knocking on heaven's door, just that, those five words or whatever it is. You know exactly what that is. And it's a million things that you could think about for two days non-stop. Oh, yeah. In five words that are very simple, you know. 
of course you can do both yeah and you do do both you know you do you know there's the pure way of doing it but there's also you know on jollification on telling tales which is a very minimal similar minimal lyric so surely it's just what the song demands no no absolutely i think i was just in the context of the songs that i'm trying to write at the moment i just often end up subtracting and subtracting till there's not much left because you know it's almost like i want nothing on there mm. Uh, but then you've got nothing. Well, this brings <laughs> us back to the, your decluttering problem, doesn't it? You know, you don't know if you want to throw it all out or if you want to keep it. It kind all. of is, really. It is. It's the hoarder <laughs> in me. Hang on, what was that? Uh, what did Marquis e. Smith want you to call your band? Oh, yeah, he was right, wasn't he? The Hordes of Brood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I think that's a sign. I'm not quite sure what it's a sign for. Um, Ian... I've detained you here long enough. Lovely talking. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. And uh, if your interest is piqued by talk of this beautiful album, Tales Told, then um, let me tell you a little bit about where you can get the record. So we're putting it out for the first time ever on vinyl. The vinyl comes with a four-track, seven-inch EP of uh, hard-to-find and unreleased songs. And... um, or on a CD, which also includes the extra songs. If you go to the Super Deluxe Edition website, then you can uh, pre-order a signed copy from there, or you can go to the, your usual trusted outlets, such as Rough Trade or Resident, and uh, pre-order the record from there, if you're not so bothered about getting it signed. I would like to thank Laura Druce, my brilliant producer, without whom these things would sound a bit rubbish and I would thank, I'd like to thank Flare Audio, creators of the Peerless Jet Earphones for their continuing assistance in putting this together but most of all I'd like to thank Ian Brody for giving up his uh, time and energy to join me here today, thank you Ian Cheers Ta. Great big.